0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 40, Repel All Borders. In the last episode, we finally brought the battle fleets of Great Britain and Germany into their long-anticipated showdown. At 6 o'clock that evening, John Jellicoe ordered the Grand Fleet into battle deployment, just as Reinhard Scheer let his dreadnoughts into the waiting trap. For 20 minutes, beginning at 6.15pm on May 31st, 1916, the guns of 27 Grand Fleet battleships submitted the German High Fleet to a cacophony of gunfire never before seen in naval history. Outnumbered and outgunned, Scheer was forced to withdraw from battle, and after a brief, ill-fated attempt to catch Jellicoe off guard, he ordered his squadrons away to the southwest. As darkness settled on the North Sea, the world's mightiest navies were in a standoff. Jellicoe, with the Grand Fleet, wheeled south, expecting to cut off the Germans' escape route and rejoin the battle by dawn. But on the German side, a horrified Reinhardt Scheer faced a perilous position. His battered ships had run the gauntlet, and those which survived could not be asked to do so again. The German admiral had but one hope, to escape the enemy before he was hunted down and destroyed. Just after 9 o'clock, the Battle of Jutland neared its denouement. The dreadnoughts had fired their last salvos, but both sides knew more fighting awaited them. With daybreak forecasted for 2am, Scheer had only 5 hours to make his move. Escape quickly, violently if necessary, or wait until dawn, when the grey monsters of Jellicoe's fleet descended to complete their grisly task. Before getting started, I have one quick announcement. Turns out, we'll be talking about Jutland for at least one more episode. I'd hoped to condense things down to a nice three-episode pack, covering episodes 38, 39, and 40, but later realized that the amount of material I wanted to cover was just not going to fit. So instead of ending off here, we're going to spill over into episode 41, where we'll look at the battle in retrospect, specifically to discuss the dog and pony show which unfolded in England after the Grand Fleet returned home. But first, let's continue. After Scheer ordered his third battle turn just after 7:30 p.m., the Battle of Jutland, for all intensive purposes, was over. Although the High Seas Fleet remained at large, it was broken psychologically, and its thirst for battle sapped dry. The Skagrak operation, which began with such hope and promise, lay crushed and defeated. The splendid achievement of Admiral Franz Hipper luring David Beattie into the jaws of Scheer's dreadnoughts marked the high point of the German effort. Hipper's battle cruisers. Matched against the superior forces of Beatty Squadron, had proven their mettle. Three English battle cruisers, Indefatigable, Queen Mary, and Horace Hood's Invincible, lay at the bottom of the North Sea, joined by the armored cruiser Defence and destroyer HMS Shark. But these successes masked a difficult truth: Hipper's surviving warships had taken their licks as well. With the exception of Moltke, the lead ships Lutzow, Seidlitz, Durflinger, and Von der Tan were little more than floating wreckages. Primary turrets were knocked out, Silitz's compass room was destroyed by 13.5-inch shells, and each ship had taken on several thousand tons of water. Lutzau, half-submerged, shared a closer resemblance to a submarine than surface ship. For Commander-in-Chief Reinhardt Scheer, the condition of his colleague's squadron was an ideal reflection of the day's proceedings. In short, they were lucky to still be afloat. Although he would never admit it, Scheer knew he had accidentally served his fleet on a platter. As the fully deployed British line materialized before him, he found himself looming the nightmare Britain's enemies so often feared. For years, German naval command had boasted of der Tag, the day, when it would finally challenge the supremacy of the Royal Navy. Germany's dreadnoughts were imposing and colossal beasts, designed specifically for giving the English all they could handle. In 1899, its architect, Alfred von Tirpitz, had written that the destruction of Germany's fleet would so much damage the enemy that his own position as a world power would be brought into question. For years, this risk strategy had held firm. Military and political leaders would toast the hypothetical, contend that when it came, they would be ready. But reality can be a terrifying thing, and when it reared its ugly head just after 6 o'clock on May the 31st, the Germans realized how all the talk in the world could not have prepared them for the real thing. The Wall of Thunder unleashed by Jellicoe's fleet exemplified not only the gap in experience and technology, but the psychological gulf between the two nations. Instead of a struggle among titans, the battle was sealed through intimidation. The British fleets flexed their muscles, and the Germans flinched away. Pacing the bridge of his flagship, Reinhardt Scheer was in a desperate search for answers. The question which plagued the Admiral's mind was how he would get his fleet back home safely. With the execution of his third battle turn, the High Seas Fleet was now on a southwesterly course, taking it further from the German coast. Having experienced the full power of the Grand Fleet battle line, Scheer had learned a harsh lesson. If the High Seas Fleet was to survive the night, then battle would need to be avoided at all costs. Somehow, he would need to get his 16 dreadnoughts through the British line without detection, all while accepting the risk of steaming back into an enemy trap. Fortunately. The process of elimination had helped Scheer decide on a course. There were only two possible escape routes open to the German Admiral. One was to go up and over the British fleet and make their way into the Baltic via the Skagorak. This path would have avoided the enemy completely. However, fuel concerns, compounded with Hipper's damaged battle cruisers and the threat of mines, had made this route too perilous to attempt. Scheer's only option then lay to the southeast an 85-mile trek to Wilhelmshaven via Horn's Reef, a shallow area protected by German minefield just off the Danish coast. The danger here was that Jellicoe, David Beattie, and the rest of the British force lay directly between Scheer and his objective. The German admiral would thus need to force his way through, and hell or high water, make a break for the coast. Just after 9 o'clock that evening, Scheer decided on the second route, and ordered his armada to set course southeast for Horn's Reef. Sheer was going to attempt his breakthrough with every weapon at his disposal. The fleet would press on with all possible speed, and any stragglers would be left to fend for themselves. Every ship was expendable when it came to the safety of the Dreadnoughts. His torpedo boat and destroyer flotillas were instructed to attack any British ships on sight, while the Dreadnoughts were to barge their way home. In preparation, Sheer aligned his fleet accordingly, so that his Dreadnoughts, led by the aging 20,000 ton SMS Vestfallen, formed the vanguard. Franz Hipper's heavily damaged battle cruisers were thus ordered to the rear. A pathetic reward given their efforts, they were now left to take their chances. At ten after nine that evening, the High Seas fleet diverted course southeast, heading straight for home. Meanwhile, about a dozen miles to the east, John Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet were about to hand Scheer a gift of immeasurable value. As he had earlier in the battle, Jellicoe had exercised caution in the wake of Scheer's second withdrawal. After dodging the torpedo attack, the Grand Fleet maintained an eastern course, allowing Scheer to put some distance between them. The fact the Germans managed to escape, despite having their T crossed for a second time, was met with a mixed bag of reactions from Jellicoe's admirals. As we saw at the end of last week, David Beattie was eager to track them down before nightfall, but was reined in as visibility became problematic. The truth of the situation was Jellicoe had no need to force battle at the moment. And no one expected that the dreadnoughts had already fired their last shots of the Great War. Strategically, the Grand Fleet was in the best possible position, deployed in battle formation and blocking Shear's quickest route to home. Meant the British had the luxury of choosing their next move. Jellicoe, of course, through fear of mines and torpedoes, was not interested in a nighttime pursuit. His concern now was to conserve fleet supremacy overnight and be ready to deliver the finishing touches by dawn. He calculated. That the best way to ensure this was to put the Grand Fleet on standby, and order his squadrons to avoid engaging the enemy until morning. Now, Jellicoe's order to break off battle is one of the more controversial aspects of Jutland, especially since it came after the High Seas Fleet was zeroed in his crosshairs. But to fully grasp why this decision was made, it's important to understand the tactical and strategic situation in which Jellicoe found himself. It was made for three valid reasons. The first of which relates to Jellicoe's overall strategy. As commander-in-chief of the Grand Fleet, Jellicoe's first responsibility was to ensure it maintained its status as the world's premier naval force. For him, destroying the German fleet was always of secondary importance, especially if it came at the risk of fleet hegemony. Jellicoe was not a gambling tactician. He believed that safety lay in numbers, and he correctly maintained that the root of British naval power had always been its numeric superiority not some cultural appropriation that British sailors were naturally better than everyone else. Jellicoe was thus unwilling to challenge 400 years of history, and was not able to play into Sheer's favour by dividing his force and scouring the sea for his elusive opponent. Indeed, many saw this strategy as too conservative, especially since it didn't quite gel with the Nelsonian principles the British were so cavalier about. And, when we talk about what went on after Jutland, it was Jellicoe's handling of the fleet at this juncture which underwent the most scrutiny. That said, however, Jellicoe was concerned about the Grand Fleet's vulnerability to torpedoes, and he suspected that Scheer would use the lull in action to launch a major torpedo strike. As you'll recall, Scheer had made his name as a torpedo specialist, and Jellicoe believed he would not waste an opportunity to deploy the underwater weapon. Fearing this, Jellicoe was not going to tempt the Germans by exposing his fleet's position, and so ordered his admirals to refrain from firing unless under attack themselves. So, keep the fleet together and maintain supremacy, perfectly justified given the situation. The second reason relates to tactics. Jellicoe wanted to avoid a night battle because British crews were not trained to fight them. Indeed, few navies at the time had placed an emphasis on night fighting. European and American naval officers had been taught to avoid nocturnal battles due to their confusing and chaotic nature. But the German navy was the exception to the rule, and Jellicoe was well aware of this. German naval planners knew they would never be able to surpass the English numerically, but hoped to get a leg up on the competition by drilling their crews in the nocturnal art. A nighttime naval battle was a vastly different creature. Targets were more difficult to identify, and as a result, night combat resembled a close-quarter knife fight rather than a big-gun slugfest. It required a collaborative effort between searchlights and gun crews, working together to isolate ships from an enemy formation. It was a three-step process. Once a target was identified, the attacking ship would blind its target with an array of concentrated searchlights. Immediately after, the secondary armament of the attacking ship would roar to life, racking its target with point-blank gunfire. After delving out its punishment, the attacking ship would then switch off its lights and fade into the blackness. Needless to say, being on the receiving end of such an attack was a terrifying ordeal, as the English were about to learn firsthand. The third factor, which led Jellicoe to delay battle until dawn, can be boiled down to one simple fact. He did not trust the quality of British seamanship. His suspicion was not unfounded. Grand Fleet gunnery had never been great, as after-action reports will confirm. But with nighttime approaching, his concern was centered on the nervous and anxious sailors at the front. As of 8.30pm, when Beattie last sighted Hipper's battlecruisers, neither fleet knew where the other was and had Jellicoe told his men to prepare for night action, it was just as likely they might mistake one of their own for a German. Inadequate searchlights and a lack of starshell, a special projectile used to identify potential targets, further justified Jellicoe's pessimism. So the ever-cautious CNC believed the safest option was to close up shop for the night, and try conclusions with the enemy by morning. At 9.15pm, Jellicoe folded the Grand Fleet into night cruising formation. The great myriad of warships was thus reorganized into four columns disposed beam, so that the lead ships overlapped with the ships of the rear. Unlike normal daytime formation, this allowed for each squadron to stay in visual contact, presenting a smaller target for nocturnal hunters. All of Jellicoe's decisions up to this point are completely justified, but then the fleet admiral did something which played directly into Sheer's favour. Although he instructed the fleet to avoid night action, Jellicoe appreciated that Shear was unlikely to do the same. Indeed, his adversary was ready to sacrifice as many ships as necessary, if it meant getting the dreadnoughts home safely. So just as the Grand Fleet finished its realignment into night formation, at 9.30pm, Jellicoe ordered his destroyer flotillas to take up station five miles behind the main fleet. The commander-in-chief hoped this would accomplish three things. One, It would put them in a position to attack the Germans if they ran for Horn's Reef, which Scheer was actually trying to do. Secondly, to defend the main fleet in the event of a night attack against the Dreadnoughts. And three, tying into Jellicoe's suspicion, clear them of any chance of being mistaken for German ships. Jellicoe was well aware his men were spoiling for a fight, in fear that an overzealous trigger finger, especially in total darkness, would result in some misplaced shots. However, Jellicoe moved his flotillas to the rear based on two assumptions, both of which were wrong. The destroyers had little idea of the enemy's whereabouts, nor were they trained for coordinated night attacks, meaning they were just as likely to fire on one another than the enemy. More dangerously was that Jellicoe's estimated location of the enemy fleet, based on David Beatty's last sighting at 8.30, was woefully off the mark. Jellicoe assumed the High Seas fleet was 15 to 20 miles northwest of his position, but as we know, Scheer had directed his fleet southeast, meaning that as of 9.30pm, the two formations were converging in a V-shape. With only 8 miles separation, Jellicoe was converging at 17 knots, and Shear at 16. As we'll soon see, that one extra knot for the British would make all the difference. So just before 10 o'clock, the situation looked as follows. Scheer's High Seas fleet headed southeast towards Horn's Reef, with Franz Hipper's damaged battle cruisers trailing in the rear. John Jellicoe, and the Grand Fleet, diverted course south by southwest, parallel to the Jutland coast, hoping to intercept the Germans at first light. David Beatty's battlecruiser squadron was stationed 15 miles ahead of the main fleet. Surely, if we could go back and watch this unfold you could only assume the opposing fleets were again on a collision course. What happened next is up for some debate. At 9.30pm, numerous historians, such as Geoffrey Bennett, have written that a sharp-eyed German lookout, most likely aboard one of the light cruisers, spots the hulking silhouettes of Beattie's cruisers moving in the gloom. At that moment, Beattie's flagship, Lion, flashes the second ship, Princess Royal, the challenge and answer for nighttime identification. As Bennett argues, this had given the Germans the advantage of being able to ambush their targets by flashing the correct response to British challenges. However, Reinhardt Scheer, who would take any opportunity to make the English look foolish, makes no mention of this timely intercept in his memoir, nor does Jellicoe in his tedious account. Robert Massey's grand narrative, Castles of Steel, outright dismisses the incident, arguing that a slip-up of this magnitude would certainly have been recorded in the official histories. Not to mention that given the distance between the two formations, no individual from either fleet could correctly identify the other, let alone the exact names of the ships in question. However, there seems to be some credit that the Germans were alerted to the British presence around this time. Victor Hayward, serving aboard HMS Tiger, now third ship of Beatty's line, with the loss of Indefatigable and Queen Mary, recalls a similar event which occurred around 9 o'clock that evening. In his account... Published in his 1977 memoir, HMS Tiger at Bay, Hayward and several others recalled seeing a masthead light which remained illuminated for several minutes. The source of the light Hayward does not mention by name, possibly to cover up any wrongdoing on his squadron's part. But had this light been observed by any nearby German, it would have allowed them to guess both the ship's speed and bearing, but also its size. All of this would have hinted to Scheer that he was west of the British and not northwest as Jellicoe projected. So although Beattie may not have alerted the Germans as blatantly as Bennett suggests, it is entirely possible that through human error, or just blind luck, the High Seas fleet managed to grab a crucial bit of information before Penumbra set in. The debate surrounding this particular episode no doubt stems from a larger issue, which is that the coming night action at Jutland does not form a coherent narrative. Since both fleets were surrounded in darkness, historians have been forced to rely on the reports from single ships, and eyewitness accounts which don't reflect anything more than what was experienced on an individual level. In fact, one of the more startling things about the nocturnal episode is the volume of words such as most likely, probably, and potentially which crop up in the record. Even in the weeks following the battle, when reports were easier to confirm or refute based on damage assessments, many veterans remained stoic in their accounts refusing to believe they were victims of mistaken identity. So unlike the run to the south slash north, or the dreadnought actions, the night of May the 31st is dominated by confusion, so all we can really do is form a timeline based on the various encounters, the first of which got underway at exactly 10.30pm. Since the Grand Fleet was moving one knot faster than the high seas, they arrived at the point of convergence ahead of the Germans. Most accounts use the same visual, so I'm just going to cut a corner and use it here. The converging V shape was now an X. The British occupying a northeast to south by southwest track, and the Germans a northwest to southeast track. Jellicoe's dreadnoughts had passed the point of contact two hours prior to Shear's vanguard, leaving his destroyer flotillas stationed in the rear to contend with Shear's fast approaching battleships. It was 10.30pm when 4th Flotilla noticed something was up. The British ships in question were the light cruisers HMS Southampton, commanded by our old friend Commodore William Goodenough, and the HMS Dublin. Lookouts aboard the English ships noticed five unidentified vessels, 800 yards to starboard, making parallel course. For several tense moments, neither side was willing to disclose the identity to the other. Then, the HMS Dublin flashed the visual challenge to the curious visitor. Instead of the correct response, Southampton and Dublin were instantly blinded by half a dozen searchlights. Four German light cruisers concentrated their fire on Southampton, and a fifth on Dublin. For three and a half minutes, the British ships were surrounded by shrieking gunfire and blinding searchlights. Forty-pound projectiles crashed onto the upper deck. Thirty-five dead and forty-one wounded lay strewn about Southampton. The unfortunate souls have been caught in the open by the sudden attack. Damage to the English ships was extensive, but they managed to give as good as they got. The defiant Southampton unleashed a single torpedo which struck one of her assailants, the SMS Frauenlob, thudding into the 3,000 ton warship on her port side, flooding compartments and cutting power. Then a parade of six inch shells fell on her deck. Frauenlob was engulfed in flames and soon capsized taking 12 officers and 308 men down with her. Only 9 sailors from the German light cruiser would survive. This first action between light forces was seen from the bridges of Jellicoe and Scheer's flagships. The two commanders could see the flashes of gunfire and whirling searchlights, yet their responses were totally different. Scheer continued his relentless drive, ordering his captains to maintain course regardless of the consequence. Jellicoe, on the other hand, was not the slightest bit surprised. As we saw earlier, he expected Scheer would attempt a torpedo strike against his line, and so he attributed the action at 4th Flotilla to be exactly that. But we need to be careful when saying this. It would be wrong to accuse Jellicoe of being negligent. He was far from it. The reason he did not alter course was because A. He expected the attack would happen, so the sounds of battle only served to confirm this suspicion, but also because none of his captains bothered to tell him what was really going on. Not a single wireless arrived on Iron Duke's bridge throughout the night. Indeed, if we thought the Grand Fleet's communication couldn't get more crummy, oh boy, just wait till you see what's about to happen next. The rapid, tic-tac nature of these attacks on 4th Flotilla will be characteristic of the night action throughout Jutland. It was a game of blind man's bluff, with ships appearing and disappearing like mirages. 4th Flotilla had barely caught their breath when at 11.20pm, the parade of high seas battleships would smash their way through. It was the HMS Tipperary which received the first blow. The 1,700 ton destroyer was stationed on the port wing after Southampton and Dublin were forced out of line due to battle damage. Just after 11.30, Tipperary's captain, C.J. Wintour, spots several unidentified ships lurking in the dark. Like Dublin before, Wintour orders the recognition challenge. Also, like Dublin before... The response she was giving was not ideal. As the searchlights switched on, the Phantoms took the form of three high-seas dreadnoughts, the vanguard of Scheer's line, led by SMS Vestfallen, Nassau, and Rhineland. The 20,000-ton monsters, accompanied by three light cruisers, were less than 600 yards away. Blinded by the light, the outmatched destroyers of 4th Flotilla did as best they could, but no quarter was given. A rain of 5.9 inch shell was concentrated on Tipperary. In less than a minute, her steam pipes were smashed and she was forced out of action. The depleted ship would sink soon after, drowning 185 men from a complement of 197. The punishment being doled on 4th Lotilla was just getting started. The German dreadnoughts, desperate to escape the Grand Fleet, continued their relentless drive. In some cases, distance between adversaries was down to less than 100 yards. Among the British, the Nelsonian cry, Stand by to repel borders, went up. Men dropped their rifles for cutlasses, and stood ready to defend their ship. Yet the borders never came. Shear continued to lunge his way through without respite, urging his admirals to stand on, stand on, whenever his ships wavered. In chaos and desperation, the remaining ships of 4th Flotilla, HMS Spitfire, Broke, and Sparrowhawk, joined battle immediately countered by the massive SMS Nassau. In an attempt to damage the enemy giants, Spitfire and Broke launched torpedoes, missing their targets but were successful in damaging the light cruiser Elbing. The smaller guns of the English destroyers did their best, racking the upper works of the dreadnoughts with foreign shells. Steel splinters caused numerous casualties among the German crews, as glass, wood, and anything not tied down became high-speed projectiles the violence continued to escalate. At the last minute, the captain of Spitfire caught sight of the fast approaching Nassau. The 20,000 ton dreadnought was attempting to ram her outmatched adversary. Just in the nick of time, Spitfire's captain ordered his ship to swerve. The timely maneuver saved Spitfire from being sliced in two, but nevertheless failed to prevent the two ships from colliding. They met bow to bow with a frightful crash. Men were rejected on the Spitfire's forward deck, as the 900-ton destroyer seemed to latch on to her attacker, her bow raised acutely out of the water. As Spitfire tumbled along her deck, Nassau's 11-inch guns let out a thunderous salvo. But the angle was too extreme, and the shells crashed into the water. Yet the muzzle blast tore off part of the bridge and foremast. As a witness aboard Spitfire recalls, quote, Our foremast came tumbling down. Our forward searchlight found its way from above the bridge down to the deck and the foremost funnel was blown back, like a hinged funnel of a river steamboat, quote. The wrestling match eventually ended when the 480 feet of Nassau was cleared, and Spitfire thudded back down to earth. As the dreadnought disappeared into the night, she dragged behind 60 feet of Spitfire's plating. Miraculously, the destroyer remained afloat, and her make her way back home the following day. While all this was happening, HMS Broke and Sparrowhawk were involved in a skirmish of their own this one with the vanguard-leading SMS Vestvallen. With the loss of Tipperary, Broke was now the flotilla flagship, and in an effort to careen her scattered formation, Broke and Sparrowhawk had set off into the night in search of stragglers. But soon after, the hull of a large ship was spotted less than a half mile away. Before the pair of ships had time to flash the challenge, a string of searchlights illuminated the hulking SMS Vestfallen. The British fired their torpedoes and turned away but in the process, Broke was hit by a salvo in the aft section, jamming her rudder and killing everyone on her bridge. The destroyer spun out of control, then, like a boomerang, tumbled backwards and rammed into Sparrowhawk at 28 knots. At a combined speed of nearly 60 knots, the collision sent men from both ships flying onto the opposite deck. 42 men were killed, and 34 were wounded in the confusion. The two ships remained wedged together for a half hour. After separation, Broke would limp her way back to shore. Sparrowhawk, her crew evacuated, was left where she lay. She would be scuttled early the following morning, when choppy seas foiled a towing attempt. Meanwhile, John Jellicoe remained oblivious that sheer was driving right through his flotilla screens. The thunder of gunfire could be heard off the starboard quarter of Iron Duke, and the glow of muzzle flash was reported throughout his battle squadrons. Yet Jellicoe could only believe it originated from the torpedo attack he had anticipated earlier. The destroyer captains, fully occupied in their thrust and parry contest with Shear's dreadnoughts, had not sent any messages to the fleet commander. As far as Jellicoe knew, the German battle fleet remained northwest of his current position. However, at 10.15 that evening, Room 40 code breakers had deciphered Shear's fleet order of 9.15, the one which instructed the High Seas fleet to break southeast for Horn's Reef. Jellicoe received a copy of this message at 11.30pm, just as contact with the vanguard was being made. But Jellicoe rejected the information out of hand. Let's not forget, the Admiralty had already failed him earlier that afternoon, reporting that Scheer remained an anchor when he had been at sea for several hours. Jellicoe was already suspicious of anything coming from London, and what gave him further evidence was the time and course listed in the message. It was dated at 1015 enlisted the German speed at 16 knots. This was the correct information, but based on Jellicoe's calculations, this would mean Scheer's battle fleet was to the rear of the British flotillas. From what Jellicoe could observe from his bridge, this was impossible. The sounds of battle coming from that sector was due to the expected torpedo attack. Surely, if 16 dreadnoughts were barging their way through, someone would have thought it wise to inform him. Yet, nothing of the sort happened and Iron Duke's wireless operator might as well have taken the night off. So comparing what the Admiralty was telling him to what he saw aboard Iron Duke, Jellicoe went with his instinct. Sheer was still northwest, and everything was going as planned. But believe it or not, there was one more layer to this comedy of errors. When Sheer ordered course to southeast, he also requested Zeppelin reconnaissance to meet him off Horn's Reef at first light. This here was the smoking gun the one piece of information which would have gave Jellicoe the clearest indicator of Shear's chosen direction. Unfortunately, for reasons never fully explained, the geniuses in management thought they could save a few dollars by cutting hours in the deciphering department. On the decisive naval battle of the Great War, Room 40 was operating with an inexperienced skeleton crew, and as a result, this crucial bit of intel, get this, was placed in the non-priority folder among the pile of pizza flyers and ads for low-interest payday loans. Any messages coming through Room 40 had to be first approved by the Chief of Operations, none other than Captain Thomas Jackson, the guy who so poorly blundered the earlier reports which almost led to the loss of David Beattie's battle squadron. Of course, the boss Jackson had ducked out early that evening, and nothing was made of the message. Management. Getting back to the front line, the night of sinking, burning, and torpedoing continued. The high seas fleet proceeded to cross the British wake without respite. Funnels belched black smoke, as Scheer pushed his dreadnoughts as hard as he could. At around midnight, Shear's flagship neared Fulcrum, when, out of the shadows, he noticed a large heavy cruiser steaming towards him. The ship in question was the 13,500 ton armored cruiser, HMS Black Prince. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because we mentioned it during our last episode. Black Prince was sailing as part of Robert Arbuthnot's ill-fated cruiser squadron, which had gone out to deliver the final blows to the crippled Weissbatten. Black Prince, along with another member of Arbuthnot's party, Duke of Ettenborough, thank you to listener Garth Pendercast, for correcting me on that, were separated in the chaos of Jellicoe's battle deployment, and for the past few hours have been trying to locate the British fleet. Just after midnight, however, Black Prince had finally located the dreadnoughts of what she thought belonged to Jellicoe's formation, The ships she found were indeed dreadnoughts, but not English. The Black Prince had stumbled right into the middle of the German war party, and it did not take long for her captain to recognize his mistake. The white searchlights from three German dreadnoughts split the night into segments. Caught in a torrent of bursting shellfire at point-blank range, Black Prince had no chance. Within moments, the armored cruiser was reduced to a mass of twisted metal. Fires raged from her central funnels, and she stopped dead in her tracks. When the fire reached her magazines, Black Prince was engulfed by a tremendous explosion. The sky was lit up for miles all around. Reinhard Scheer had a front row seat to the spectacle. His flagship was less than 1,500 meters from the site, and recalled the horrific sinking in his memoir, writing, The destruction was so near that the crew could be seen rushing backwards and forwards on the burning deck, while the searchlights disclosed the flight of heavy projectiles. It was a grand but terrible sight. Although Black Prince was an obsolete ship by the naval standards of the day, her sinking marks the last British ship to be sunk by German gunfire at the Battle of Jutland. Like the loss of defense, indefatigable, Queen Mary, and invincible, the explosion consumed the entire ship. Her crew of 900 men perished in the conflagration. This loss on the English side was counterbalanced by one on the German. In the North Sea's obsidian waters, Shear's battleships had worked their way around the port side of Jellicoe's formation, and were now facing the final straightaway, a 30-mile dash for home base. They survived the violent clashes with 4th Flotilla, at a cost of only two light cruisers, Frownlob and Elbing, the latter having been abandoned due to extensive torpedo damage. But as they neared Horn's Reef, Shear's battleships would encounter one last group of British destroyers. The time was one forty-five a.m., daylight was beginning to creep its way back on the horizon. Throughout the night, 12th Flotilla had not been involved in any of the night skirmishes. It had observed the booms of gunfire and orange flashes in the distance, but understanding its position and obeying Jellicoe's order against night action, 12th Flotilla had held course. Consisting of nine destroyers under the flagship HMS Faulkner, commanded by Captain Anselin Sterling, The formation was preparing to resume the daylight battle which Jellicoe had predicted. Suddenly, a keen-eyed lookout spotted the dim silhouettes of German battleships materialize out of the western shadows. This time, it was the English who had the upper hand. The destroyers of 12th Flotilla were obscured by the dawn mist, and with the sun peeking over the east meant the effect of enemy searchlights would be negated. Like sharks circling their prey, Nine British destroyers increased speed to 32 knots, and closed in on the aloof Germans. In his memoir, Victor Hayward describes the coming strike as the perfect example of a night flotilla attack. Swooping in from the east, the destroyers launched their torpedoes. 17 underwater missiles, armed with 400 pounds of amatol, were streaking towards their targets. The white flash emanating from the torpedo tubes caught the attention of German gunners, who immediately opened fire with all available weapons but they had no clue where their targets were, and their firing was chaotic and misplaced. Obscured by mist, Twelfth Flotilla had retreated with wraith-like transparency. Safely from a distance, the destroyer crew stared at their watches, counting down the moment of impact, and when it came, it arrived with a thud and dull red glow. One of the torpedoes had struck true, and its victim was a battleship of a bygone age, a pre-dreadnought, the SMS Palmerin. The 14,000-ton warship was the only battleship of either side to be sunk during the battle. The kill shot was delivered when she was struck by a single torpedo near one of her gun magazines. Like Invincible, Pomeran was ripped apart by the explosion and went down in two sections, bow and stern. But unlike Invincible, there would be no survivors. 844 men, a third of all German casualties sustained in the entire battle, went down on the ship the final casualty of Jutland had been claimed. Fifteen minutes later, Reinhard Scheer and the High Seas Fleet completed their breakthrough, and with the Grand Fleet in the rearview mirror, the German Armada hit open water. The first ships to reach the coast did so at 3.30am on June 1st, 1916. Over the next several hours, the remaining ships would struggle their way into port, the long delay owing to the fact they had to navigate a belt of protective minefields. It was a tedious process, but by noon, the main body of the high seas fleet was safely back in Wilhelmshaven. A much relieved Reinhard Scheer arrived home at 5am that morning. His daring plan to escape the English had paid off handsomely, yet the German fleet which followed was not the same as it was when it left. Franz Hipper and his mangled battle cruisers just barely made the crossing. Seidelitz had lost all sense of direction and ran aground twice before being towed into port. She had taken on so much water, her crew were flooded up to their waists, and her hull scraped against the shallow bottom. Durflinger and von der Tann had also suffered tremendous damage. Only two guns from each ship remained operational. Moltke, Hipper's temporary flagship, arrived the least damaged. Despite 16 casualties on board and taking on a thousand tons of water, her engines remained operational and had managed to keep up with the fleet throughout the night. The saddest fate was reserved for SMS Lutzow. Due to sustained damage, Admiral Hipper had relocated his command to Moltke, leaving Lutzow to trail behind like a wounded animal. Since the commencement of the run to the south, Lutzow had absorbed a staggering 24 hits, several of which had come from the heaviest guns of the Grand Fleet, including the 15-inch behemoths of Evan Thomas's Super Dreadnoughts. Although she remained afloat, the level of damage she sustained eventually caught up. By midnight, her speed was reduced to just 7 knots, and despite the best efforts of her crew, she continued to take on more water, some estimates as high as 8,000 tons. Her crew realized the cause was lost. Two escorting torpedo boats pulled alongside her, and 1,040 officers and men, including 115 dead, were evacuated. Unwilling to leave such a prize ship to the enemy, she was scuttled just before 2 o'clock in the morning a pair of torpedoes slammed into her port side, and the 26,000-ton warship disappeared into the Grey Sea. Just as the German armada slipped through their fingers, the men of the Grand Fleet greeted morning's arrival with enthusiasm. Crews had remained by their stations all night, smoking, resting, and listening to the roar of battle to pass the time. Guns remained loaded, and their thirst for the coming showdown was unquenchable. At 2am, Admiral Jellicoe rose from his cabin, prepared to resume battle. After surveying the situation, Jellicoe was soon hit with an uneasy feeling. Visibility had not yet improved. The sky was a dull grey, and the fog which swept in 8 hours earlier continued to blanket the surrounding area. The anticipated slugfest would thus be taking place at a much closer range, as Jellicoe could count just 4,000 yards visibility. What concerned Jellicoe above all else, Was the position of his destroyer flotillas. They were scattered far and wide as a result of the confused night action. Since he was so close to the enemy coast, he would need his light forces ready to beat off any potential ambushes from U-boats or destroyers. But as Scheer's fleet was slipping their way into harbor, Jellicoe suspected the enemy remained to the northwest. After all, no reports of a German breakthrough had been reported, so Jellicoe could only assume this scattering was due to the expected torpedo attack. Fifteen miles ahead, David Beatty's squadron, which had spent the night repairing damage and tending the wounded, likewise reported no sightings of the enemy battle fleet. Jellicoe was thus relieved that things had worked out well. His focus now was to get his destroyers reorganized and keep watch on the horizon. The high seas fleet would appear at any minute. Instead, the Grand Fleet was met with eerie silence and empty horizon. With the exception of a brief visit from a curious German zeppelin, no enemy forces were seen. Just before 4am, Beatty requested permission to scout northward, hoping to shepherd the Germans into Jellicoe's trap. But before Jellicoe could respond to the inquest, Iron Duke's wireless buzzed to life. At 3.50am, Jellicoe received the news that dashed all hopes. The Admiralty had learned one hour earlier that the High Seas fleet was within 16 miles of Horn's Reef. By the time it took to decipher, broadcast, and then relay the news to Jellicoe, it was too little too late. Since an hour and a half had elapsed, Jellicoe could only reach one conclusion. At 4am on June 1st, 1916, Admiral John Jellicoe reported to his admirals that the enemy fleet had returned to harbour. There was to be no completion of yesterday's work. The curtains for the Battle of Jutland were drawn. All Jellicoe could do now was collect his fleet and hope to pick off any enemy stragglers. The Germans, however, had done a good job of covering their tracks. Ships which couldn't travel were abandoned and scuttled, but the telltale signs of battle remained. Hundreds of corpses floated in the great oil smears which marked the graves of once proud warships. For the remainder of the morning, the Grand Fleet reorganized and took stock of their numbers. Among the damaged ships of David Beattie's squadron, those who succumbed to their wounds were buried at sea, in quick but emotional funerals. Although a clear picture had yet to be formed, Jellicoe was beginning to learn the cost and magnitude of the battle. At 11.30am, David Beatty was finally able to relay the loss of Queen Mary and Indefatigable. Jellicoe, who up to this point was only aware of the loss of Invincible, was disheartened by the news that the two battle cruisers had been sunk, especially when it was made clear they were lost in single explosions. Jellicoe knew that casualties were going to be high, but there was little he could do while at sea. Ships would first have to be brought home for assessments and repairs. The wounded needed medical attention. After that, the paperwork would start. Captains would file their reports to squadron commanders, and the bureaucratic machinery of the Admiralty would switch into high gear. Yes, the fun was just getting started. At 11am, Jellico reported to London that the Grand Fleet was returning to port. Next week, we'll close the book on the Battle of Jutland by examining what went on after the Grand Fleet was safely in anchor, and what Jutland meant for the war in a wider context. Needless to say, there would be questions aplenty. Since no one had planned or expected the battle, no one knew how to react when news of it began to percolate. It was the Germans who set the tone. Having arrived home before the English, Berlin wasted no time in proclaiming, the Battle of the Skagerak, a resounding victory for the German Navy. As the news worked its way over to London, it set off a frenzy which would soon eclipse everything England had experienced thus far. Indeed. As men like John Jellicoe and David Beatty were to learn, facing the German fleet would be nothing compared to what awaited them when they stepped off onto shore. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are interested in supporting the show... An easy way is to look us up on iTunes and leave a 5 star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. A second way to help out is if you have any loose change burning a hole in your wallet, you can make a one time donation through the homepage. This will go to help cover the cost of acquiring sources and ensure the show delivers the most accurate and up to date research available. This week, I would like to extend a big thank you to listeners Godfrey Roberts and Keith DeFabio, who recently made donations. Thank you so much for your donations, guys, and Godfrey, I hope your issue with Chromecast has been resolved. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.